Hey, good people, this is your N.I. Don, back with another reflection, and this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I'm going to start um, this reflection with an interest in um, talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles. I'm in this spiritual community. I told you about it. It's a spirituality and justice community. So we talk about spirituality, faith, but we also talk about power through the, through a critical theory lens as critical theorists. And so I've been talking about that over the last two weeks. Um, so that's that. You also know that I've been in a spiritual bubble for myself. There's some growth. I'm at a place of growth that can only happen once I accept myself as a spiritual being and I embrace that I'm on a spiritual journey, that I've maxed out of my growth in terms of um, just in terms of a lot of the other frameworks that I've used. And so it's time for me to to consider myself not just as a body and not as a, a set of mental functions and not just as a, 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 psych, a psyche, if you will that there's a spiritual component in me and there's some growth that is requiring me to, that requires that I use my spirituality to do the growth. So I had a couple of encounters yesterday, excuse me, over the last few days with um, my, well, one of my sisters that I've called Riley, I named her as Riley, and um, and as well my double sister, the one I was raised with. Now I'm calling her Charlie. So the previous episode was called Charlie and Riley. Goes so, and then I talk about some intergenerational trauma. I talk about some sibling rivalry, and all of that is related to um, my thinking this morning on the Jews and the Gentiles. Believe it or not. So I started off uh, the previous reflection saying that I wanted to talk about uh, neurotics, empaths, narcissists, and character disturbed people, and all of that's still true in this reflection, but I think I'm entering, I want to start off by talking about the Jews and the Gentiles because it's a great way to bring all of that together. Spirituality, uh, trauma, and growth. And I don't know, I just want to, we'll see what happens on the other side of the reflection. But I'm going to start off by talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, okay? If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as being an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I lean into tenets of critical race feminism, which means I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs such as race, class, sexuality, and gender as um, as in containers of power, as structures of power. And this this project is unedited and it is unscripted. If you want to know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. All right? So the Jews and the Gentiles. So I'm in this spiritual community um, and uh, we are in the process of trying to learn each other um, and learn what we're going to do with this group. So this is a new group that's forming by two people who said, we were in another voice community, and 
faith and spirituality came up in that conversation. And then somebody in that group said, well, we don't know if this is a place to talk about faith and spirituality here. But if anybody would be interested in going into a separate community, let us know. And I said, I would like to. So it's three of us. Right now, we're in this space. We're talking about spirituality. We're talking about some personal stuff where it's, um, you know, we come from different backgrounds. And so we've just decided that it would just be important to kind of name what we're doing, name what we're doing, name the spaces. Let's agree on some terminology that we're using. Let's agree on, like we said last night, some values, some processes. So we're in that initial formation stage. We're in an initial formation stage. And um, part of that is, like I said, it's a lot of uh, getting to know you chatter, uh, sharing some stories. And um, on Sunday, the the other woman in the group posted something about I can't I don't even know what she posted in the in the chat, but she's like I'm just putting this here so I can come back and talk about it. And so she came back yesterday to talk, uh, or she posted that on Saturday. But anyway, she came back yesterday to start a conversation. And so that conversation was about Christianity and this relationship between Christianity and Judaism and who Jesus is for both of those religions. So, and I'm I'm going to talk here. This is nowhere near my area of expertise. So if I say anything that's wrong and you know the answer and you have time, feel free to Share with me. I always talk about this is, you know, I'm reflecting. I'm not educating. If you happen to learn something along the way, that's great. If you happen to be inspired, that's even better for me as a change agent wanting to promote growth. But at the end of the day, I am reflecting about my inner and outer worlds out loud. And then you are responsible for taking that information as you need to. So I'm just, that's that's a dis- another disclaimer I want to put for this reflection as I talk about um, and my understanding of Judaism and Christianity. So um, in the, in the Bible, which is the Christian holy text, we have what's called the old Testament and the new Testament. The old Testament is the, as I understand it is the Torah for Judaism. So the Christian holy text takes this text that existed for Jewish believers and now has these added books because of what Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus did in the world and the writings that came after him. So in the New Testament, the New Testament is all about the Jesus' walk on this earth and the promises that Jesus offered and the way Jesus brings us to God, uh, being brought to God by way of Jesus. Okay. All right. That's about it. I hope I explained that fairly well uh, with some level of respect. So the lady in the voice group that I'm in um, raised a question around the question. She said, there's about a two year gap in those books from the last chapter of the old Testament which would be the same as the Jewish text, I think. I think it's safe to say that. And the first book of the new chapter of the new of this extended of new the first chapter of the New Testament. 
and that I think is Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. So there was a question about what was retained and what was lost in that two-year period. As we t- as we look at the the text, the this the New Testament as relating to the Old Testament as connected to Judaism. Oftentimes in this group, um, this guy, one of the things that the guy has been doing that I really appreciate is he, he calls it, he says Jewish Jesus. And I love him saying Jewish Jesus because what it does is it puts Jesus in context to Judaism. Jesus was born as a, in the Jewish lineage. He's a part of the Jewish lineage. And there's a question about, did Jesus come to start a new religion? And many people argue that he did not come to start a new religion. Um, but I guess that's an ongoing debate. So, so I would say that many, I, many Christians I know say that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. But then this, uh, the guy in that group who's Jewish said, that's a question. He's not 100% solid that that's not the case. And I understand that perspective. So what I said from a critical theorist perspective is that as critical theorists, what we do is we question, we unpack, we uncover for refinement to improve a thing. Oftentimes when we come in and we are being critical, and not negative, not critical as in negative, but critical as in uncovering and revealing. Then what we do is, what we do is make people uncomfortable. And in that discomfort, we are either pushed out, discredited, alienated, excluded, and whatever. So this notion that a new religion evolved as, excuse me, this notion that Jesus came to start a new religion has to be considered with this question. What was Jesus doing to the existing religion? He was asking questions. He was creating a way to include more people, to bring more people to God. That's what he was doing. Was he trying to do away with, no, that's not how I see it. That's how many people I know see it, but I mean, everybody's entitled to their own opinions. This is, but this is my opinion on this podcast that I'm talking to, talking through right now. So that's the, that's kind of the question that came up in this community that I'm, this voice community that I'm a part of. The other thing that came out of this voice community is the idea of the Jewish, um, community. Those are your chosen people. Those are God's chosen people. And then Jesus came along to bring in the Gentiles so that they can reap the benefits of God's chosen people. So God had his chosen people, the Jewish community, and had and because these people were his chosen children, they had these benefits of being chosen. And then Jesus comes along and he brings in the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and now they have the same benefits, the same rewards as those chosen, as those that were chosen. And that there's no difference according to how Jesus teaches this. There's no difference in terms of 
being accepted as God's children because now Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that allows for that to happen. This is really weird that I'm having this conversation. I've never talked like this. This is just not what I do. I don't talk, I don't talk religion. So this is kind of interesting that I'm doing that right now. Um, okay. So that's that. So the question that I raised is, so one person in the group raised the question of, um, did, did Jesus come to start a new religion? Another question was about, could those people actually, can the Gentiles, by way of Jesus' sacrifice, by way of his ministry, can the Gentiles really be brought in and accepted as God's children, even though they were not the original chosen? That's the second question that came up. And now my question that comes up is this. When you, when you say you're going to include when you when you when you say Jesus came to bring in the Gentiles in to God to be children of God, can you can you say that while at the same time acknowledging the Jewish community as the chosen community? I don't know if this makes sense. The nature of saying you can be brought into to and become ch- a child of God by being grafted in, by being brought in because of Jesus made the sacrifice for you to be brought in as a child of God, and you can re- re- you can reap all the benefits, all the benefits. And I don't know if this is related to the scripture that says the last shall be first, the first shall be last. I need to look that up. But you can be brought in with all the benefits and still say they're still the Jews are the chosen God's chosen people. That's my question. It's a critical question. It's to me it's an intellectual question. Like so that was the that was how I what I what I brought into the conversation. Now all of that, I said all of that, all of that relates to this converse, this consideration I've had about my, my sisters in the last 24 hours. I just think, did I know that this community was going to bring this question up about the chosen children, the children that were brought in, who gets the benefits, you know, um, that I know I did not know they were going to have this conversation in that voice community. And I did not know that as I listened, because it is a voice community, there's no video. It's all voice. I did not know that as I listened to this conversation that I, my brain was going to automatically go to looking about my sisters and the interactions that I had with them yesterday. So go check out the earlier, the previous episode, Charlie and, and Riley, um, to get a little bit, a better sense of what my interactions with my sisters have been. So. What I said is, what I'm thinking as I'm connecting the two is this idea of a God. A God that would have a chosen people. And then allow other people to come in to be considered children, other children, but not the chosen children. I mean, that's kind of what I hear when I hear somebody explaining that Jesus came to bring in the Gentiles, so they can, they too can have, be of children of God, but they're not going to be the chosen ones. 
So that could be my bias. And what I think about is a narcissistic parent and a narcissistic family structure. And I'm not trying to say God is a narcissist. Good Lord, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that at all, but this is what I wondered. In a narcissistic family structure, you have a narcissistic parent. And that parent typically has more than one child. That, um, those kids are not on equal footing with the parent. That parent has a, what's called the golden child. That's the chosen. That's the favorite child. And then you have, you can have the flying monkey. You can have the scapegoat. Those are the other kids and they play a different role, but they're not the chosen. And what happens is that they're all in their own way trying to get the rewards of that parent because the parent isn't committed to distributing resources equally. The parent may say he's doing that or she's doing that, but that's not what happens. So then there's this competition between who's going to get the resources. And I think I also connected it to the voice community about what what is the role of religion. Um, I read an article about six, seven years ago that said religion is about deter- determining worth for resources. And to get, if, if we believe resources are finite, that they're limited, it's not enough resources to go around, then we have to ask the question, who then should get access to those resources? So we determine worth. Religion says you get access to this resource because you're good, because you're good and you're godly. And the people who are not good and godly do not get access to the resources. So being good then becomes a marker of or a determiner for resource distribution or resource restriction. Um, and so I think about all of that as it relates to the narcissistic family structure. When kids are fighting for their parents' attention and their parents' approval of determining worth, because ultimately it's going to determine who gets access to those resources. One other thing I want to say, and then I'm going to try to move on. A narcissistic parent exists in this way because of his own um, not wanting those kids to unite. So the narcissistic parent feels feels more safe, more secure, whatever. Keeping the relationships in the family all centered on that parent. So I have a relationship with you, I have a relationship with you, I have a relationship with you. Child A, child B, child C. I'm threatened if child A, B, and C come together and have a relationship together. Because then I feel that their togetherness overwhelms my existence, overshadows my existence. I don't want their presence. I don't want to be overshadowed. So what I'm going to do then is make myself the center of each individual relationship and not create a space where the children are in a relationship with me as a whole. So, my goodness. I'm having some, I'm having some breakthroughs already, already having some breakthroughs. So I'm, so again, I'm not saying God is like that parent, but when we start using this metaphor of God is the father and we're the children, you're the cho- 
you're the chosen children, you're the chosen ones, and then you are the ones we're going to let in. You get to have the name of God, you can have the resources, but at the end of the day, these are the chosen ones. If it does nothing else, it should at least cause some curiosity, okay? And so I want to park that just for a second. Um, like I told you, I already did a reflection today called Charlie and Riley, and in that reflection I was just talking about um, my sister's and I have never had a, it's, so it's my dad had three girls. We never had a relationship where it was the three of us. He never fostered that. He had four kids, three girls and a boy. He never fostered that group family identity with all four of his kids. He had individual relationships with us, but he did not have a collective relationship with us. Um, he's not, he never said he didn't want to have a collective relationship with us, but all the same, he did not. So as we have gotten older and, um, and for various reasons, different people have had a different, a growing appetite to have a relationship with their siblings. We didn't have any model or support in developing those relationships. So now we're trying to develop relationships with each other's without the benefit of an outside facilitator. As I said in the previous reflection, that's what a parent does with their kids most of the time. Most of the time, particularly in healthy situations, you are raised to be supportive of your siblings. You're raised to acknowledge, to be close, at least culturally, that's true for me. And you don't enter into the world knowing how to be close to your siblings, just like you don't enter into the world knowing how to be close with your parents. All of that's facilitated by the parent. That's like I told my mom. Unfortunately, that's the job of the parent. When you decided to have a kid, that's what you opted to do. Or that's part of the work. Or if you want this healthy space. So that was what the, I was doing in that first reflection, really trying to process, um, you know, so now that my father has passed away, all three of my siblings in different ways are like, I want to be close. Let's work on this closeness. And it's not working. And one of the reasons it's not working, and I'm not going to say it'll never work. I'm not going to say that at all, but it's not working. It's, it's there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of like hardship. There are questions about it. So like it's four of us, three girls, one, one, one uh, guy. I'm the only one that did not vow to get closer after my father's death. I have been focused on, well, why weren't we close before he died? I understand why we weren't close as kids, but as adults, we could have made a decision to bypass the mechanisms of my father and, and, and we could have attempted to be close and no one did that. Now, maybe, maybe the impact of my father on each one of us individually didn't, um, prevented us from having the desire or the skill set to come together as a group, as a sibling group. Maybe, but all three of my siblings have said, now that dad is not here, now we can have a relationship. And there's something about that that bothers me. It bothers me. 
because I, it just, it just bothers me. And it could be me coming forward as a daddy's girl in, 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 even though my relationship with my father was also complicated and just, it was, it was that complicated. There's still a part of me is like, I don't know if I think he should get all the blame because we didn't, why didn't we put forth the effort before he passed? I'm, you're 52, I'm 50. So here the age is 52, 50, 45, and 30. What was preventing that? So now you all want to do it. And then it's this, in my feeling, it's very um, feeling oriented. It's very um, staged. It doesn't feel natural. And yeah. So anyway, that, that's just, so that's, um, kind of where I'm at in general. My youngest sister and my middle sister are, you know, doing this sister thing. And I already unpacked that. I'm not going to go down this too far. They're doing this sister thing. And it is the first time that my sister is developing a relationship that excludes me. And she's not trying to exclude me, but she's trying to be protective of my sister, my Riley and I, we don't get along. My 30 year old sister, we don't get along. And I don't know how to unpack that. Anyway, I feel like I'm about to go and repeat myself. Hold on one second. So that's kind of what came out of the reflection for me this morning. I felt really good about that. I was, after I finished the reflection with you all, I contacted my siblings and I was like, let me just, I was in meditation this morning. Let me tell you what came out of my meditation. We really have never had any outside help to help us to, to develop as, to, to develop, to be close. Um, and yeah, and we've, and we've, never attempted to have a collective relationship. We've tried to have individual relationships, but never have a collective relationship. And those are two important uh, breakthroughs that I had. um, And I wanted to just share that with you to consider. So I did share that with the group. Only my, only Charlie, my double sister, she only responded. Riley, my single sister hasn't said anything. And my brother hasn't said anything yet, but it's okay. I put it out there. So that was a major breakthrough. Before I hit the record button from this morning, I was just really curious about my, um, about Riley, my single sister's, her, her, what feels very confusing, her interest in having a relationship with me. So she wants to have a relationship with me. But I don't think her definition of a relationship is the same as my definition of a relationship. So in her mind, the reason why we are not close is because we don't know each other. And I said, I don't know if I agree with that. We spent time, we had 23 years. I said, it's not like we haven't tried to have time, spend time together. We, we spend time together. 
we don't hit it off. There's something that happens when we spend time together that's off-putting for one for us. So then we spend time together and then we go away. And then we come, and then she wants, oftentimes, she comes back just, this is very similar to what my dad did, and go check out the episode I called The Jack in the Box Dad. I'm here today, but I'm gone, to, I'm, then I'm gone tomorrow. And there's no real uh, sense of predictability of when you're going to be here to try to be dad, and when you are gone saying you can't do it. That's the same thing that my sister does, my Riley, my single sister. I want us to work on being sisters. I'm here for it. And then something happens that will trigger her and, and, and frustrate her. And then she goes away. Then she, whatever this, and then she decides at some point, months later, years later, I wasn't mature then. And then she wants to come back. The reality is she doesn't sit well with my energy and, and, and I, this is something I have to accept. I don't sit well with hers. And I never would give myself permission to say that because for most of our time together, she was the child. Well, she's been an adult for 13 years now. But but I've always said, well, I'm the oldest. I'm going to understand. And I'm not going to um, be mean to her. She can go away when she wants to come back. I'll accept her back. But... After spending time with her yesterday and Saturday, what I realized is that she has a persistent way of seeing me through a deficit lens. She sees me through a deficit lens. So when I do something, because she sees me through a deficit lens, she automatically sees the thing that I do in this negative way before she sees it as positive. And because she doesn't know how to confront or she's conflict avoidant, she won't bring up questions. So then there's this passive aggression that she'll do or she she goes away. And I never really understood that. And then she wants to come back and then she wants to control the narrative. Oh, that was the younger version of me. I'm more mature now. And what I told her yesterday, I said, but you keep doing that. At some point, you're going to have to say, what is the thing that allows you to keep being turned off by me? Keep being turned off by me. You keep seeing me through a negative lens. That doesn't feel good for me. That doesn't. And so when I'm around you, I'm guarded. I'm reserved. I'm closed off. And then you see that. As me not wanting you to be my sister. It's not that I don't want you to be my sister. What I don't want to do is keep having this yo-yo relationship with you. See, I tolerated that with my father. And I didn't say this to her. But I tolerated this for my father. Because even though that was painful. That yo-yo jack-in-the-box thing that my dad did. I still got something from him. In this really weird way. I still got something from him. I'm not getting anything from my single sister. I'm not getting anything from Riley that would allow me to be tolerant of this back and forth. Right? It's not just a back and forth. It's a look, being around somebody and knowing that they see you through a deficit lens. And one of the things I'm really getting this at this this conflict this time around is that she doesn't want me to talk things through my, with my training. Because with a deficit lens, I can't have an analysis of what I'm the problem. She's not the problem. Through her deficit lens, 
I'm the problem. Okay, I'm done with that. So this is where I want to, this is what I landed with for myself. Neurotic personalities are constantly laboring to prove, to just, there are two things that a neurotic will do. And I've understood neurotic personality types. On the surface, the neurotic personality is is trying to invest in another person. I'm going to invest in with you, investing in you. I'm going to show you. All, I'm going to love on you. I'm going to understand. You know this thing that you're doing that's hurtful to me. I, it's hurtful, but I'm going to understand it because you don't mean to be hurtful. You got this other thing that's going on. So there's a lot of a, a neurotic person is very understanding, um, is forgiving is um yeah understanding forgiving and is and loving i want to say that forgiving understanding and loving that's what the neurotic person does on the surface underneath that is a person that is trying to prove to themselves that they can be loving understanding and forgiving And I haven't read this a lot. This is my hunch right here. I'm about to say something that's, that's coming out of my hunch. I don't, even, I don't even know if I want to say my intuition. But my hunch is saying that that neurotic person was raised in an environment that told them that they were unloving. They weren't, they were unloving. They were unloving. They were not lovable. And so now they are trying to prove that. Now, they don't prove that with someone else who is lovable. They prove that with the same type of person that charged them with being unlovable. And that's where you get into what's called the character disturbed person or the narcissist. And really, they are two different kinds of people. Like, a, But I think for the sake of this conversation, I can lump them together. Most people understand this kind of person as a narcissist. But I like this book that talks about it as a character to serve person. And I was going to do, some, you know what, I'm going to do some reading for you. Hold on, let me go give you, do some reading. Hold on. Okay, so from this website calls it, uh, called Choosing Therapy, um, it says, what is a narcissist? A narcissist is someone who views himself in a higher in a higher than thou attitude where they believe they are more special and deserving of things deserving of things as resources just hold on to that they tend to have a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder which is marked by grandiose thinking inflated sense of ego lack of empathy and a need to be admired by all deep down they have deep-rooted insecurities and fears which are covered up by the narcissistic traits now that's the definition for a narcissist I'm going to go to a definition for, um, um, sorry, excuse me, a, a, a character disturbed person. Um, hold on. The primary defining qualities of the disturbed character are a deficient, immature, or absent conscious ego. In, okay, are a, defi- a deficient, immature, or absent conscious ego inflation 
problematic attitudes and thinking patterns and irresponsible behavior patterns. Okay, that's that's a that's an awkwardly worded sentence where the commas are in weird places. Let me try this one more time. The primary defining qualities of the disturbed characters are a deficient, immature, or absent conscious ego. Deficient, immature, or absent conscious. Ego inflation, problem attitudes and thinking patterns and irresponsible behavior patterns. It's all there. When a neurotic individual, the one I just described, hooks up with a disturbed character, they often try to be the con- be the conscious for both parties. When the disturbed character defaults on yet another debt, the neurotic floats another loan. When the disturbed character, well, I, I just switched to another website. This one is called, um, uh, disturbed and neurotic behavior. I'm sorry, I just switched over to a different definition. I hope you guys are bouncing with me. When a neurotic individual hooks up with a disturbed character, they often try to be the conscious for both parties. When the disturbed character defaults on yet another debt, the neurotic floats another loan. When the disturbed character cheats again and blames the neurotic's lack of attention, the neurotic tries harder to please. The neurotic may feel in his or her heart that the blame lies with the disordered character, but the disturbed character manipulates the neurotic into believing that everything is his or her fault. This disturbed character is in such a relationship never has to develop any kind of conscious because the neurotic frequently exercises conscious for enough for both of them. So, oh my God, there's so much there. So I'm thinking about my 10 year relationship. I'm also thinking about my relationship with uh, parent slash parents. Um, and, and I'm definitely thinking about relationships that I have with friendships in the past where the friendships, like I always talk about one-sided relationship. It's a one-sided relationship. Um, and it is not mutually caring, mutually beneficial and all of that. One of the things I'm wondering about with my sister and her desire to keep coming back is I wonder if she sees the neurotic side of me and the side of me that is forgiving, that's going to be loving and understanding of her behaviors and that I will not um, because I don't think that my 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 double sister, because what I've been asking my double sister is, why do you think she does this with me? She both challenges me and then she leaves. And then when she comes back, she's always, she's either trying to get my attention or she's trying to fight with me. And something is coming up for me in terms of, um, it's like, a uh, that that sounds kind of borderline, doesn't it? And I'm not trying to nego- um, I'm not trying to diagnose Riley. What I am trying to do is just raise the question because so our brother, she's really not interested in developing a relationship with. So she will pursue relationship with me. But while she's pursuing relationship with me, she's then deciding and 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 yeah, deciding that I'm problematic for a number of reasons. But then she pursues the relationship. See, something has to give. I'm not pursuing that relationship and then naming her deficit. I'm pers- I'm trying to be forgiving and understanding, right? I'm trying to be forgiving and understanding to somebody who doesn't think that they're doing anything wrong to me. So what I told her for the first day, time ever yesterday is that I find her to be hurtful. I find her to be hurtful and it... I, and harmed around her. Her response to me when I said that was, 
are we, I think I told you guys this already, just bear with me. She said, do you think we're close? I said, no. Well, how can somebody who's not close to you hurt you? It was a deflection, right? Somebody tells you they feel hurt and harmed. You have very little curiosity. You immediately create a defense to negate it. That's fine. That's okay that you do that. What I don't understand is why you, there's a pattern of you finding these reasons, these problematic parts of me, yet you keep coming back saying you want to do relationship with me. So I got a text from her yesterday morning. This is what happened. She said, I don't want to cause a problem now that, um, cause she never called our father dad. She called him by his name. So let's say his, say his name is, um, um, Peter. <laughs> now that Peter's not around, she said, now that Peter's not around, um, I want us to be able to, to develop the relationship. If I could have the text messages for all the times that she's come back to me to say, let's just do this relationship. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. And here's the other thing, that understanding nature that I was doing with her when she was younger, because I know she came, I know she came from a, a problematic childhood. I know that I, I know it, but that's not benefiting me. That's, that's, that is a, a very neurotic part of my being. Somebody is harmful. I understand. I forgive. And I, okay, you come, then you go away. I make peace with you being away. And then you come back and you start it all over again. So that's, that's what I did with my dad. And I'm, I'm sad that my father is gone. But the one thing I can say that I buried is I buried that yo-yo relationship. I buried that jack-in-the-box relationship. I will not do that with my single sister. I will not do it. Now, what I can commit to is I can commit to being in a collective space with you. I can commit to having a collective relationship with you. We get to know each other all together. But I will not do an individual relationship with you because it's too harmful. And there is no outside mediator. And what I'm realizing is that if I am the problem, I'm not going to be able to bring forth any explanation, concern, or defense that will have validity in our mind because I am the problem. And let's just say all of this is gibberish, concocted, I'm concocting a bunch of nonsense. All right, let's just entertain that. At the end of the day, um, I have to do two things. I have to, number one, accept that this gibberish is my truth, right? I have to accept that. I have to make sure that I am not ignoring what's obvious to me in a space of trying to prove that I'm lovable and I can do loving relationships. Same thing with this damn, the damn job. I think I have a hard time accepting my truth. This is what I'm going to bring through to the, I have a hard time accepting my truth when it comes to pain. There it is. I have a hard time accepting my emotional truth because I don't, I never, I wasn't that my connection with my emotional truth was never fostered. It was never developed. It was never affirmed. It was never, it was always dismissed always by both parents. Right. So I don't have this relationship where I can feel a certain thing and own it. 
Now, I can put that in the realm of a BNI and TJ, like, I don't have, con- I don't have uh, contact with my feelings. I'm rational before I'm, I'm, I'm feeling based. I like to use my thinking function rather before I use, tap into my emotion. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. This is one of the, if I had, if I had nine lives like a cat, this is something I would do in one of my lifelines. I would do a research study on the family dynamics of INTJs because most of the INTJs I know come from some kind of uh, disturbed family space. I'm very, this is why I'm no longer willing to say I was born as an INTJ or I was INTJ in the womb. There is a person, a part of my personality that I, that did exist in the womb, but I'm no longer willing to say it was INTJ. I think whatever that womb personality that I had as it entered into the world, it, it, the inner and the outer came together as INTJ. Just like we're very clear that the Enneagram is a part, as a response to the outer world. Mm-hmm. But I think that, and I, I'm, I really believe the cognitive functions is also a connection between the outer and the inner world. I really do. So what I'm the takeaway from me, and I'm going to just close here. I feel like I haven't completely flushed out what I wanted to, but knowing how this podcast project is, is an ongoing conversation. It's going to surface. It's going to resurface. And the next time it comes up, it's going to be crisper and cleaner because I've already, I've broken through the pathways of processing this. This was the breakthrough. And that I saw for the first time when I was talking to my single sister yesterday, when I was talking to Riley, that this is a pattern. This is a pattern of her finding problems with my personality, finding problems with my existence, yet wanting to stay in that space. And now that I'm wondering, maybe she doesn't go away. What if the whole jack-in-the-box or the yo-yo thing is not about the other person? What if it's about me? And I go away. Because I'm not, I'm not dealing with that. Then a person comes back and it gives me, they give me this, um, they, they make this case. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't mature. I was going through something. I'm an understanding person. I'm like, okay. So I'm again. I'm not going to lock this in. I, I am, but I am glad that this was my initial consideration. And we will see what happens as this idea continues. But as a person, you know, you, I have heard people say that when they come out, you know, this whole coming out. Usually, we think of coming out of the closet as relating to sexuality and a person comes out and says, I'm trans or I'm bisexual, or I'm gay, right? What I've read is that that's not a one-time only event, that there's a continuous process of coming out. And I see that about this healing work from trauma. It's not that I'm, um, it's like um, being reminded that this is like my new truth, right? And so what I said yesterday, I said, 
this is, I said, I'm not, well, first of all, I have to let me celebrate because out of all this time, I've never, um, said, Hey, I find you to be hurtful. I felt, I felt hurt, harm. And I did, I did a little bit of crying. My, my double sister, Charlie said, well, maybe she needed to see that. That bothers me that a person need, when people say they need to see me cry in order for them to feel good with me, you shouldn't have to see me cry. That's not my nature. So I'm sorry about that. So I'm, I'm going to just celebrate the fact that, um, you know, the fact that I was able to name that feeling right away, um, And I think the next step is just making, cause I'm like, she was like, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? It, I, I, this is the part that still feels fuzzy for me. You want to linger. Cause she said, well, I just want us to get to know each other and spend time together. We have spent time together and in us spending time together, then I have to keep experiencing the way you are seeing me. I don't know why this feels like a really important breakthrough. So I think that other part holds true in terms of us being, you know, spending time as a collective. I'm okay with that, but I'm not interested in spending spending time with you one-on-one. I don't have, I I just don't feel like there's an, we don't struggle. We don't struggle in the one-on-one. We struggle with how you went when we're around other people. And so that's the part that you're going to need to do. If you're going to do that at all. And I am going to tell her. And I do, I do think she does this going away as well. I don't think it's just me going away. Don't come back. We're not going to have this back and forth. Don't come back. So um, I just am not interested. I'm, I'm just not interested. And I think this is why she feels like. I. She made a comment a few months ago. I don't want, I don't want to acknowledge her as my sister. That's not it. What I don't want to do is be in an unhealthy relationship. The old me was forgiving, understanding, and loving. I'm not, it's not that I'm not loving anymore, but I'm not going to be in this cycle. I'm not going to be in this cycle where someone only has something negative to say about me. That's the only way you know how to relate to me. I'm not going to do that. Now, I'll have to talk about this at another time. I've been, somebody has said that to me. And so I think that, because I think my sister is an INTJ. She says she is. INTJs are fixers, so we tend to see problems. I'm okay. You look at me and that's all you see is a problem. I'm okay with that. I'm just not going to be in a relationship with you and all you can see is me as a problem. I'm not going to do that. Um, and so this is good. So I'm going to, um, I don't think I'm a neurotic person I think that I had definitely I'm a, I believe I'm a recovering neurotic I'm a recovering neurotic and the 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 idea of accepting the instinctual side of me is really important the idea of what accepting the eight side of me was it's really has been really fundamental to my growth and now the part of me that says I don't have to continue to be in the presence of harm to prove to you that I love you. That is not what I have to do. And I'm not going to do that. So that's growth. Again, I haven't done a lot of um, 
trauma-based reflections this season because I really felt like I worked through some big ones, but I come from intergenerational trauma. So there are many other people in this orbit that's also dealing with their trauma that, that I'm interacting with. So it, I don't know if this is going to be a situation of like, check, 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 I'm done. I don't know if that is the case. I don't think, I don't believe that is to be the case. I'm just going to always have to be mindful and prepared to deal to that, uh, that trauma. I'm not the only one impacted by the intergenerational trauma. I am not the only one impacted. Other people that I love are, are impacted as well. And just because I love you does not mean I'm going to continue to be in a space of harm to prove that to you. I'm just not going to do that. And this is growth. I really wish I would have hit this place of growth and maturity before now, but I'm here. So I'm just going to celebrate that. If this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about, oh, I can't close yet. Let me, let me, let me bring it full circle to the Jews and the Gentiles. I am no longer, I'm not interested in being a Gentile anymore. As a Gentile, I'm saying I understand I'm not the chosen one and I am going to earn and work my way or receive my way into being accepted. I don't want to do that. That doesn't mean I'm denouncing my Christianity. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is I'm going to not embrace that, the chosen one, and then you have the other people that are grafted in. Um, but you still have the, but while they're grafted in, while they're brought in, they're included, there still is a chosen one because there is a secondary, there is a mindset that results in that. I'm not chosen. You love me, but I'm not the chosen one. Do you know how dangerous that is? You love me, but I'm not your chosen. Well, what is, what kind of love is it then? What kind of love is it then? And then what kind of love does the chosen one get? It's differentiation. It's differentiated love. That's what it is. It's differentiated love. It's love all the same. It's inclusion. It's not exclusionary love. It's not exclusionary. It's inclusionary, but it's differentiated. And I think that those of us who come from a space of differentiated love, differentiated love, have, we have a psyche, a psychosis, is it? A psyche, psychosis, a psychology, I don't know if I'm saying it right, of saying, of, of constantly having to be mindful of not being the chosen one and also trying to do the work so that we can be right on par with the chosen one, on par with the chosen one. And I think, so that's how I'm going to make the connection to the start of this reflection where I said the Jews and the Gentiles, right? I'm going to either name this the Jews and the Gentiles or I can name this as differentiated love. I'm not sure which one I'm going to choose, but that's what I've been talking about, right? This differentiated love and the psych psychology of it and how it becomes problematic as you enter into other relationships as an adult, and then when you're in relationship with other people who are also coming from trauma, that it just keeps bumping against each other. And it's not a pretty situation. It's not a pretty situation. So this reflection is not done. But if any part of this reflection where I'm talking about differentiated love and, you know, being accepted, being a competing for that central love figure for the 
core resources, um, sibling rivalry, um, even the, just the pure part about the Jews and the Gentile, any of this reflection relates to a conversation you've had in the world. Please take this link and share it out. If my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. I really would. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. You can also find me on Twitter, yournidom1, Facebook, or YouTube at yournidom. Let me give you your assignment. I want to ask you, have you ever experienced differentiated love? I ask you if you've ever experienced differentiated love. Somebody loved you, but you saw them loving someone else differently. You saw it, you observed them loving someone else differently. But you you were told that they, they loved you. So this kind of comes back to the, um, it goes back to the reflection I did on bell hooks. I can't remember what it was called. I don't know if I named it bell hooks. It was, I know I did something on YouTube, but I did something on the podcast. And it was sometime at the end of December. And it was dealing with a, um, an article that I read. Where um, they're saying Bell Hooks was talking about when somebody says "I love you" and they hurt you at the same time, it gives us a distorted view of what love is. I love you, I hurt you. Then I grow, I hurt you, but I love you. So then I grow up believing that love is hurtful, and then I interact with my adult relationships like that. That has to create neuroticism, right? That idea that. Man, if I love a little harder, I won't feel the pain. And that's, no, that's not cool. That's not cool. It's not cool. So the question to you is, when have you experienced differentiated love, particularly when it's been hurtful? Now, have you unpacked that? How have you unpacked it? And how are you looking out to see the residue of that in your personal life? How are you looking out for the impact of that type of experience, the residue of that kind of experience. The question is, how are you even looking out for it? Two part. Part one, when have you been a part and observed you being a part of differentiated love? And then how do you look for the residue, the impact? It's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.